0: Well, it's kind of hard to believe, isn't it, that we're, what is it, four weeks away from Easter? It's coming up quick. That also means that spring's just around the corner. Actually, it's tomorrow, isn't it? Isn't it tomorrow? The official start of spring, I think, is when it happens. I see some nods. Head's nodding. Good. So I got that one right. You know, and uh, as I think back, it's hard to believe. That means that we are about a quarter of the way through 2017 already, which just boggles my mind, I don't know about you guys, but I can't believe we're already that far into 2017 already. But, you know, as I think about that, it's also curious because I think back to, like, Monday, and it's a blur. So, because so much has happened within a week, and yet we say years fly by, but weeks go so slow, it seems. And, you know, this past week, uh, somebody that speaks to the business that we have, I don't know about you, but when I talk to a lot of people and I look at my own calendar, it seems like it's just packed full. It's amazing how much you can actually pack into a week. How much happens from from Monday through Sunday that we can pack in with, you know, if I went through my calendar, I could show you a list of of meetings and funerals and counseling and sports activities, and this weekend we had the Promise Keepers event a lot of guys went to. There's uh, probably about a dozen of us from the church that joined, around around 500 men who were at uh, at Weka this weekend, Uh, some pretty fired up guys that came out of that, and that's exciting to hear and to see what that's going to do within our church community. Really exciting to be there. Uh, But it's amazing how much we can pack into just into one week. And as I was thinking about that and praying about over the last little while, thinking we were going to be heading into a time of of, uh, reflection leading into Easter, I got thinking about how packed full Jesus' last week was. The final days that he had. And it led me to to put together a bit of a sermon series for us leading into Easter that we're going to be calling His Final Days. We're going to be starting that today. Now, these final days is often referred to as Jesus' Passion Week. Have you heard that term before, the Passion Week? And it kind of refers to those final days that lead up to the Passion of Jesus Christ, which is kind of the Friday through Sunday time. And during this Passion Week, it includes some of the most profound teachings and some of the most vivid expressions of love that Jesus spoke and demonstrated. I think in part because he knew the time was short. He knew that the sand was almost out of the hourglass, and this was his last attempt to teach and to express these things to those that were going to carry on his mission once he was gone. You see, Jerusalem, had, Jesus had entered into Jerusalem to the sound of people cheering. He had come into there with people praising and waving palm branches, but he knew that it wasn't going to last. The religious leaders were at a breaking point. The multitudes were stirred into a frenzy. His disciples were still trying to make sense of it all. And the stage is set for Jesus' final days, which take place in Jerusalem in the vicinity. Now, historically, these events of the Passion Week are attributed to specific days of the week. That's where we get uh, words like Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday. They're attributed to certain days of the week. But if you read through Scripture, there's certain markers, and historically speaking, there's other events that are very profound that have been attributed as well to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of that week. So in these weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to take a look at an account from each day of the week that led up to Jesus' death and resurrection. And in so doing, we're going to be tracing the steps... We're going to be tracing his words. We're going to be following his actions that led to Jesus' final days. One week, one week on the calendar of the greatest person to ever walk the face of this earth. One week in the calendar of the incarnation of God, who so clearly and passionately provides us final demonstrations of truth and love. So today as we begin this series... We find ourselves on Monday morning. Monday morning as Jesus wakes up on the day following his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, which we refer to as Palm Sunday. On that Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a colt and people were celebrating, waving palm branches and, and cheering the arrival of Jesus, who was coming in the in the in the fashion, the cultural fashion of a victorious king coming into the capital city. And Scripture tells us that after he arrived in Jerusalem, that he then went and he surveyed the Temple Mount. And he walked around the temple for a while, surveying it. And then after that, it was evening, and so he then went to a small town called Bethany. Now, Bethany is a town that's about two miles east of Jerusalem. And that is where he will rest. That is where he will lay his head most nights throughout this Passion Week. And part of the reason I think he goes there is because he has friends there. If you recall from other stories in the Gospels, that's where friends such as Mary and Martha live. Remember Mary and Martha where, where one is so busy with, with the desire for hospitality and preparing for guests and one just wants to sit and visit and learn. And I think when we look at Mary and Martha, their home, this, this gift of visitation and this gift of hospitality, perhaps that was like the first bed and breakfast kind of thing that was opened up. But they also had a brother, remember? Their brother was Lazarus. And, and Lazarus, he, he owed Jesus big time, right? Like, Jesus brought him back from the dead. So I have a feeling that at this bed and breakfast of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, that Jesus is allowed to stay for free for life. Because I think they owe him pretty big time for that. Now, unfortunately, what they don't know is there's only a week left until he's gone. So Jesus wakes up Monday morning in this town of Bethany. And, like so many of us on Monday morning, we wake up, it's time to go to work. So he gets up and he starts his commute back to Jerusalem. Now, if you're anything like Nadine and I, we're a little slow Monday mornings at times. It's a little hard to get up and get going and get back to work. So, sometimes by the time we're ready, we rush out of the house, we actually end up missing breakfast at times. So, we go to work hungry. I don't know if that's exactly what happened for Jesus or not, but as he and his disciples are walking towards Jerusalem on that day, Scripture tells us that as they're walking along, they're they're hungry. And so Jesus, seeing a fig tree just a little ways up the road, he decides that he'll stop, that he'll pick some figs off, and he'll eat of the fruit of the tree to, to nourish himself. But when he gets there, there's nothing but leaves on the tree. He walks up to the tree and there's nothing on there but leaves. There's no fruit to be had on the tree because, as Mark tells us in the account, the tree wasn't in season. And then Jesus says this. Curiously, Jesus goes, then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat the fruit from you ever again. Wow. If you picture yourself, that's pretty harsh. And it says the disciples were there and they, they heard him say this. Now, imagine if you were one of the disciples standing there. You're watching, you're listening to these events. You're, you're just walking along the road to Jerusalem, talking about the day's events. Possibly speculating on what was about to happen. And then suddenly, Jesus is cursing a tree. Now, first of all, you're probably a little bit disappointed because you're hungry too and there's no fruit on the tree. But, but in addition to that, I have to imagine there would be a sense of curiosity and, and perhaps a little bit of confusion as to what's just taking place here. Why would Jesus curse an innocent tree? Like, like the tree had done nothing wrong. As, as Mark shares with us, the tree was not in season. And everybody knew that. If you lived and grew up in an area, in a region that had fig trees growing as one of the main produce, you kind of knew what season they would come into to, uh, to bloom at. And, and figs weren't supposed to be there until late May, maybe early June kind of a thing. And this is, this is early. This is like March, April on our calendar. So what had the tree done wrong? But in addition to that, you're thinking, you know, these last three years as we follow Jesus, he, he knows people's thoughts. As we've followed him along, he's able to multiply and do miracles to feed the 5,000. Just a day ago, he was able to predict where we could find a colt that he could ride into Jerusalem. So why in the world is he stymied by this tree? What is going on here? That, why couldn't he tell from a distance the tree had no fruit? Why didn't he just do a miracle and turn some leaves into fruit and feed himself and feed the disciples and have a multitude left over for everybody else in the town? And why at the end of it would he curse out of frustration at a tree? I think there's something else going on in this passage. Because it's a very curious passage left unto itself. And what's going on here, I think will become clear as we look at the entire passage that Mark puts together. Which is found in the book of Mark, chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. 25. And we're going to come back to the story of the tree a little later on. Because what Mark does here is he uses a literary style called sandwiching. Where you have two bookends, if you will, or or two pieces of bread that form a sandwich, that hold the sandwich together. And by doing this, by splitting the story of the fig tree into two, he's using the story of the fig tree to help us interpret, to help us understand what comes in the middle. Which is why this is such a curious passage to take on its own. It helps us to interpret what comes in the middle. In essence, the tree is a visual metaphor. And so what's in the middle of our sandwich today? Well, we're not told any more about the fig tree at this particular point, but we'll come back to that a little later on. But I can tell you this, it is no coincidence that that tree was in full view of the temple. That tree was in full view of Mount Zion, where the temple resided, which is where our story quickly picks up again. Because on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out all those who were buying and those who were selling there. And he overturned their tables and and the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Is what we're told happens next. Now this temple complex, if if you're not too familiar with it, it, it's not just one building. It's actually a massive area at this time. It's, It's an area that covers about 300 meters in one direction and 450 meters in another direction which adds up to about 35 acres of space that this temple takes up. And in addition to sort of the main sanctuary in the middle, there's also larger outer courtyards that exist too, including one of the biggest, which is referred to as the Court of Gentiles, that all people were admitted to go to. And moving from the Court of Gentiles inward, we get increasing degrees of holiness as we move from the Court of Gentiles right up to the middle, which would be the Holy of Holies. And as we move inwards, not only do we get increasing degrees of holiness, we also get increasing degrees of exclusivity that happened to. Where in the court of Gentiles, everybody is permitted. It's, it's a public square. That's where a lot of the commerce for the city of Jerusalem would take place, and, and especially around the time of the Sabbath, where there would be a need for people to change money, and there would be a need for people who were selling animals. You see, the commerce of the day required the use of of, uh, of Roman coins that had the picture of the emperor on them, but the temple wouldn't accept those. And so you would have to go to a money changer and exchange it for a coin that had no face on it if you were going to pay your temple tax. Also, there are people who didn't have the means or the ability to access the appropriate animals for the sacrifices which were prescribed, so they needed a place on which they could purchase these types of things. And so this court of Gentiles is a great public square, and then moving inwards with increasing degrees of holiness. Now, much ink has been spilled to f- kind of determine what Jesus did on this day in this court. Now, some have suggested that Jesus was simply reclaiming commercial space, that he could use it for the proper purpose of, of prayer. Others have suggested that Jesus was expressing religious indignation at the flagrant abuses taking place. In essence, he was trying to reform the temple when we look at the passage, what precisely was he trying to reform? There really isn't any evidence of a reformational agenda taking place here. Another suggestion, many people consider that Jesus was concerned for temple purity. And so in light of the, the profane commercial activities taking place, that prompts him to action. This is actually, I grew up in the church, and this is actually how I came to understand this passage. And, and when we look at the passage on its own, this is a very common understanding of what's happening here, is Jesus is, is moved to righteous anger over the profane commercial activity taking place. However, there's some challenges to that perspective. I, that's what I grew up with and always believed, and I was challenged by looking at the greater passage as a whole. Because remember, Mark places this between two pieces of bread in that sandwiching style. And so we need to interpret this in light of all the evidence of how it's put together. You see, a lot of people believe that this is the direction that it was going, that it's this this profane commercial activity taking place, and because of that, many a church bake sale has been shut down in a church foyer. But let's look at that for a second. First of all, remember, this took place in the outer court. The outer court is not considered a sacred place. It's a public square. It's where Jews and Gentiles were all to come together. It's where much of the commerce of the entire city, in particular the temple, was to take place. It's a place where people were able to buy and sell what they needed, what was vital to temple operation and the sacrificial system. You see, many people didn't own the appropriate animals that they needed to sacrifice. Imagine for a second if you're a Jewish carpenter living in the city of Jerusalem. You work with wood all day. You maybe live in the city and don't have the means nor the space to have a pen or a space to raise a lamb. You may not have the means to look after a dove, and yet you need to go worship, and so you need somebody to enable you to take some of the profits from your carpentry business and purchase the appropriate animal to go fulfill the sacrifice. So there was a legitimate purpose that was going on with some of the transactions taking place. Now, I am positive there are some crooked transactions going on, I, I'm convinced that there were people who were inflating prices. That absolutely, I think we can agree, was going on and is inappropriate for people to be taking advantage of the sacrificial system that way. But if we look at one other important piece of interest, evidence here, it says that Jesus drove out all those who were buying and selling. What that means is that in Jesus' action, he was driving out all of those who were selling at inflated prices. He drove out all those who were crooked and corrupt. But it also means he drove out all of those who were legitimate people trying to offer a service. But more importantly, it also means he drove out the worshipers. He was driving out those who were genuinely trying to come to the temple to offer their sacrifices. Now, considering all the evidence, perhaps there's something else taking place here. In particular, what does that have to do with a fig tree? which is very much related to this passage. Well, there's something else going on here, and at at a narrative level, I'd like to suggest to you that Jesus is not trying to set up a prayer meeting. He's not trying to reclaim space for a prayer meeting. He's not trying to reform the temple and institute new sacrificial system. And he's not necessarily driving out these corrupt transactions, but instead... He's actually trying to cancel the whole system together. Which is a strong statement. That he might be trying to make a vivid example that a change is coming. That the old way of doing things which has failed and corrupt is coming to an end. And the new system is coming along. And so like a prophet announcing God's judgment upon the, with, with vivid actions, Jesus clears the tables and he halts the activity in the temple courts. And with words that were pronounced against this fig tree, still fresh on his followers' ears, this season of fruitlessness was coming to an end. Now, to further support this understanding of the passage, we just need to look at Jesus' teaching that goes along with it. And it serves to further support this understanding of what's taking place here. Because it continues on. Talk about how Jesus began to teach. That gives us understanding of the evidence, of the... uh, example that took place here. And he said to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law, when they heard this, they began to look for a way to kill him. And they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. You see, Jesus spoke these words which will be very familiar to those who were gathered there, in particular to the religious leaders, because these words are direct quotes from two very prominent prophets. He's quoting directly from the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah. And he's quoting them from times when they were bringing serious indictments against the people and the leaders of Israel. So it's no coincidence he chose these particular prophets and these particular words from these times. The first one we find comes from Isaiah 56 which is a passage that speaks about how God had promised salvation to all people, and that his temple, that, that this place that he was at, was to be the dwelling place of God, which would bring joy for people, which would be a place where people could come to faithfully pray and receive forgiveness. But instead of that being fulfilled in the temple, what he was witnessing was, was that the temple had become a source of exclusivism. It had become a nationalistic shrine and it actually only served to divide Israel from the rest of the nations rather than drawing them unto God. Now, this is not uncommon within our society, going unchecked. If you think about throughout all seasons of life and, and human nature, there's this aspect of within us when we get into social groups that, that leans towards exclusivity. We tend to know if we're on a sports team or if we're in a class or if we're even in the sanctuary, we tend to know who's in and who's out. It's just a natural kind of default that we have within our humanness. We know who doesn't get picked at recess, and we know who gets picked first. We know who gets invited to the dance and who's not allowed to come. We know who's on the list and who's not. We know who gets voted off the island first and who wins at the end of Survivor. If you get on an airplane, we know who's in first class and who's in coach. We're all familiar with that one because the first class, people sit down first, and then the coach people do the walk of shame as we go by. And they make it worse by closing the curtain, right? The Berlin Wall kind of comes down, separating first from coach, if you will. That curtain separates first class from coach. It separates court of Gentile from holy of holies. But you see, in a few days, in a few days at the time when Jesus dies, that curtain that separates will be torn from top to bottom. And once again, Access to God as he first desired will be open to all people. This sense of exclusivity will be gone because all people will be able to draw close to God. Now secondly, Jesus gives us a quote from the prophet Jeremiah, from Jeremiah chapter 7, which is a very, very striking quote. And this is where Jesus refers to them as, the temple as, as, a, as a den of robbers, a place where thieves would hang out. Now, here's the thing about this quote. You know, we often think that robbers are doing their business in that den area, but, but that's not what happened. If you think about it, criminals go out and do their crimes in public, and then they retreat into the den to huddle together and claim safety. That's the purpose of the den of robbers, is a place where you can come after you've committed your crimes to, reclaim, to claim your safety. And in Jeremiah chapter 7, God accuses the people very directly. In, in, in verses 9 through 11, he accuses them of stealing, of murder, of adultery, of perjury, and of idolatry. Then he goes on in Jeremiah to say, If that wasn't enough, if, you, if it wasn't enough for you to be out doing these things, you then think that you can come into my temple, offer sacrifices, and because you offered a sacrifice, you can claim we're safe, we're fine. And God says he finds those actions and that perspective that you can do what you want and then come after a sacrifice, he says that is detestable to me in Jeremiah 7. Because God's main concern is not the ritualistic act. God's concerned about the heart. But where the heart's at. And these indictments against the temple are actually similar to a debate that erupted back in the 1980s that some of you may remember there was a theology that was catching on in a lot of churches called cheap grace. You heard of that before? Cheap grace? Well, it was something that was starting to be, to be taught in a lot of evangelical churches. And, and pastor and theologian John MacArthur waded into those waters and took them head on, objecting to this teaching of also referred to as carnal Christianity. And the, the essential teaching of this cheap grace or, or carnal Christianity was that as long as you make a profession in Jesus Christ... As long as you've prayed the prayer, you're saved. You're good. That's all there is to it. There's no need for obedience. There's no need to know and follow the commands of Jesus. You don't need to strive to live a life of increasing holiness. That you're good. That you can keep online. You can keep on swearing. You can keep sleeping with your girlfriend. You can steal from work. You can cheat on your taxes. It's okay because you've prayed the prayer. And grace covers it all. Simply put, to sum up this idea of carnal Christianity or or cheap grace, simply put, is the idea that you can have Jesus as a Savior, but having him as Lord is optional. Now, MacArthur waded into these waters because, and I think a lot of us would agree with him, that's not the message we find in the gospel. That's not the message we find in Scripture. And I could go on for quite a while unpacking that, but I'll simply share one verse with you that that really flies in the face of that, that Paul wrote for us in Romans chapter 6. When he says this, he says, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? You know, the more I sin, the more God gets a chance to show how awesome He is because His grace has to keep being poured out. So, should I go on sinning so that grace may increase and just show how awesome God is? By no means. Because if we have died to sin, how can we live in sin any longer? if we have accepted Jesus Christ and had that transformational work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, how can we live in sin any longer is the question we're asked. We should be striving on towards acts of righteousness and holiness. It's not about perfection. It's about the heart. It's about the direction. Are we center set towards Christ? Are we striving to be more like him in all ways every day of our lives as opposed to I can do what I like, and he'll deal with it. In summary of this, what Jesus sees in the temple fills him with righteous anger. You see, this place, which was to be a house of prayer, this place, which was to be where people could fellowship with God, where people from all nations could find forgiveness. It had become a sanctuary for bandits who thought that they were protected from God's judgment because they found a loophole in his system. But needless to say, The people were absolutely amazed by these teachings. The word amazed there actually is is better translated stupefied. They were shocked and stupefied by his teachings. And not surprisingly, the religious leaders were furious. But they were also terrified. And so they determined that Jesus must die. Now I'm not sure what the conversation was like that evening as they walked back to Bethany. I imagine it was probably pretty quiet as the disciples processed all that they had heard and seen. But, but the next day, as they walk back to Jerusalem again, they pass by that fig tree. Remember the fig tree from the very beginning? They walk past the fig tree, which is our second piece of bread, to sandwich this whole story together. And Peter notices something. And when he sees it, he exclaims to Jesus. He says, Jesus, teacher, look, that fig tree that you cursed, it has withered from the roots. Meaning there's no way to save it. When something withers from the roots, it doesn't matter how good of a botanist you You cannot bring it back when it's withered from the roots. It is dead forever. And remembering that fig tree that was full of leaves, but bore, bore no fruit. You know, from a distance, it looked like it provided good fruit. From a distance, you thought, hey, I'm gonna, I'll be nourished when I get there. But once you got close, you found nothing but leaves. It was nothing but show and shine. It appeared to give nourishment, but after you experienced it you were left empty and so these words of jesus spoken against the tree in the shadow of the temple no one shall ever eat your fruit again this barren fig tree symbolically represents the temple but also something that jesus had taught earlier at the sermon on the mount earlier in his ministry he had taught he said watch out for false prophets by their fruit you will recognize them Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, and every bad tree bears bad fruit. The temple was originally designed to be a source of good fruit. It was supposed to be a place where people could come and pick from the temple and and be nourished. But Jesus had just given it a harsh rebuke for what it had become. But God wasn't giving up on his plan for what that would be for the people, because he was about to fulfill that eternally, through his only begotten son. The disciples couldn't understand this in the midst of it as well, but when we read this account of the temple and the fig tree in John's account, he includes this important verse where Jesus says on the temple mount, he says, I will destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now later in the week, that would be one of the very accusations that Jesus would be accused of when he stands before the teachers of the law at his trial. Now, with the advantage of history on our side, we know what he was talking about. We know that when he said, I will destroy it, this temple may be destroyed, but I will raise it again in three days, that he was talking about himself. And we know that he was talking about the fact that the forces of evil thought that his death would be their greatest victory ever, but in fact turned out to be their most stunning defeat, because he did rise on the third day. And no longer would God reside in a building made by human hands, but instead God would dwell in the hearts of every person who chooses to accept him as Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior, because there is no cheap grace. There is a cost to discipleship as well. And so with this season of unfruitfulness about to end on one, it is about to rise to a season of fruitfulness on the other, made possible in Jesus Christ. And so beyond the symbolic understanding of the tree that we see here, Jesus doesn't breathe another word about it, but instead he offers words of instruction. As we move to examine what happened on this last Monday, we turn our attention to the instructions he gave to the church of Jesus Christ that exists even right up to today. His response to Peter's comment and response to this withered fig tree, this is what Jesus says. He says, have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their hearts, but believes that it will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And then, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. See, this passage focuses upon three things focus upon three things that speak of the church that was going to move forward following his death and resurrection. And we're going to briefly mention these three and then we'll be done for today. Number one, I'll ask you a question. Where are we called to put our faith? Well, I think the answer is obvious. He very clearly says in verse 22, have faith in God. We are to have faith in God above all else. But here's the thing, even the priests believe that though. Even if we were standing in the Temple Mountain, Jesus had asked them that question, they probably would have given us this answer. But he still rebuked them even though they knew the answer to this question. Because you see, there's a difference between knowing about this, there's a difference between knowing about it or or practicing it through simply... ceremonial rituals, and actually living it out in all areas of our lives. But Jesus takes it a step further. He actually goes on to qualify this faith. He goes on to qualify it as a faith that can move mountains. Now, I genuinely believe that there are many people in this place right now where it is the cry of your heart. It is the genuine desire of your heart to have faith in all areas of your life, to have faith in God. I honestly believe that. But then when we see this qualification that we would have faith that would move mountains, uh, that's a little more challenging. You know, that means that we would have a faith that stands in the face of insurmountable odds. That when we have moments of fear or uncertainty, that our faith would stand when things come against us in our families or in our health or in our employment or in our finances that our faith would hold, when we don't know if he's coming home tonight or we don't know if she is safe, we don't know if we will get through this. When I don't know if she will wake up tomorrow, I don't know if they will forgive me, I don't know what to do next. That in those very moments, that even when the strongest of us try to cling to the faith that we have, if we're honest, we know that there's a dose of doubt that starts to creep in. But what the call is here is to continually strive towards having a faith that can move mountains. And when he says mountains, remember where he is standing at the time. When he says, when faith that can move this mountain and cast this mountain into the sea, he is standing on the Mount of Zion, talking about do not put your faith in the buildings of man. Do not put your faith in systems that have failed. But Jesus Christ is the one in whom we can put our faith. And so it's a metaphor we find that was very poignant to those people who were listening at that time. Because around the time that Mark is writing this, the Temple Mount was in Jerusalem was about to be sacked and destroyed, or it just had. Now those who were listening at this time thought maybe this was a metaphor for the future. But the audience who would be reading this would be living in the moments when the Temple was destroyed. When the Temple was wiped out. And their faith was now at a point where they had to ask themselves the question, Is my faith going to be words on a page? Is my faith going to be something that I have at one moment, perhaps not at another? Will my faith be in a relationship with him, or will it only be on rituals and ceremonies that would only exist on a Sunday? Or will I have the type of faith that when it is lived out boldly, and it will be lived out daily, and it will be unshakable in the face of adversity, and when I open the scriptures of Psalm 62 and read the words of verse 2, I will feel like that is the, the call of my heart where it says, truly. God is my rock. God is my salvation. God is my fortress. And how does it finish? I will not be shaken. Is that the kind of faith that we can have? That is a high calling. But is what God, what Jesus puts out to us, is that we would have a, a faith that is unshakable in the face of insurmountable odds. And with that faith firmly in place, firmly fixed upon God alone, he then calls us to be a people of prayer as well. That prayer would emerge out of that. And we see just a few days from now, Jesus will find himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, giving us a wonderful example of what it means to, prayer, to pray at a most difficult time from a position of faith. And what we see in this is, number one, that Jesus calls us to be a praying community that we would seek support from those around us, that we would invite those to come into our situations to pray with us. When he got to the garden, remember, he took with him that evening, Peter, James, and John, and said, come with me. He wanted their prayers. He wanted their support. He wanted their kinship on that evening when he was facing the most difficult time. He wants us to gather together and to share our burdens, to confess our sins, to come together as a community, to pray as one. If you have ever been in the midst of a difficult trying moment and people come alongside you to pray for you You know what he was longing for you know the feeling that he had that night when he wanted the support of brothers around him to lift him up in those most difficult moments but then we look at Jesus' prayer itself he demonstrates for us that it is fine to confidently and boldly present our request before god this is god's very son who is saying lord everything is possible for you take this cup from me and from this deep position of faith and trust, he presents this request to the Father in just openness and honesty. Now, people criticize Jesus for doing this. You'll have people criticize him by saying he didn't want to go through it. He never wanted to die for you. He was trying to back out of it. They might even say, how could God pray such a thing? But I think what we see modeled for us here is that Jesus, who is fully human and fully God, that his humanness in this difficult season is rising to the surface as he models for us what it means to express genuine prayer in the toughest of times. And so when we find ourselves in these times, when we have these challenges, when we have these big emotions, when we have these big requests, when we have prayers that would take immense faith to be answered, I say bring them. Bring them before God. Bring them before him and see what he can do with them. But as we do, do so always with an attitude of submission. Understanding that he has the final word. He has the final word on how that prayer is answered. And then once we receive that final word, we move forward. Because Jesus then finishes prayer by saying, yet, not what I will, but what you will. Faith in action. He's saying, Lord, I believe you can change my situation. I believe you can come in here and you can do something different. We can do this another way. I believe that is within your power, Lord, because I believe you can move mountains. But Lord, if I must endure, I rise and I go forward, trusting that you will prepare me, that you will equip me, and that you will be my guide as I walk through those darkest hours. And then finally, in keeping with God's standing desire for his church to be a house of prayer, a church where this would happen, but a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus reminds us that we are a people who are bound together by the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And that we are to forgive one another. We are bound together not because who we are, not because of what we have done, or some sort of achievement or accolade or some exclusive right that exists within us, but we are bound together because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus has done, because of what he has achieved Because of his death and his resurrection that makes Easter possible that we will celebrate in just a few weeks. And because Jesus welcomes all, we can look at the words of Paul in Romans 10, which says, Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. That curtain has been torn. The same Lord is the Lord of all and richly blesses all who will call upon him. And everyone who calls upon his name, everyone who calls upon the Lord, will be saved. It doesn't matter if you are rich or poor, if you are free or a slave, if you are a man or a woman, if you are young or old, sinner or saint. We all stand at the cross on level ground. We all stand before Jesus Christ in the same need. Now in the weeks ahead, in a few moments as we leave this place, there will be various places and groups and encounters that you will have with all types of people. In the season ahead for our church, as we move out on mission and with different ministries that take us beyond the walls of this building out to West Edmonton, there will be people we will encounter who will look and act and talk and worship the same way we do. But there will be others as well. And I know that there are some others that we will struggle with at times, that we personally may have struggles with. There'll be some that we encounter who have very open and obvious sins in their lives. There'll be others who have more hidden sins. But regardless of who we encounter and how easy or how difficult it is for us to relate with them, there's one thing I want us to all keep in mind, that every person is loved by God. And every person, whether they have explicit or hidden sins, every person needs to have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And so in closing, I pray that we would be a people who are known as a people of God who, number one, stand for the truth of the gospel and have experienced a transforming power that we can have through that experience and that we would then have this unshakable faith in God alone. That we would see our church that we would see our homes, that we'd see our small groups, that when we form triads in the foyer after the service, that we would see those as places of prayer where we confidently and boldly cry out to God, expecting Him to do great things. And then when we go beyond the walls of this place and we encounter those who are different, we encounter those who are perhaps contrary, maybe even hostile, that would see the value in them, that they too are image bearers of God, people He loves, people He died for and people that we have the opportunity to introduce to Jesus Christ. That they too may come to know the one who loved them first and sent his son to die on a cross for them. That we could all be with him together forever. I want to close with these words from 1 John. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son that we might live through him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross, for the promises of Jesus Christ, that we can trust in him, that we can place our very lives before him, that whatever situation we are going through now, whatever situation waits for us tomorrow, that we can have faith and confidence that you are with us, God, that you walk with us. God, may we, take these steps of faith and, and have a growing testimony of your truth and your goodness and your reality and your love for us that we would then take that out to share with others. That those who may be very different than us are no less in need of you, Father. And perhaps we could be the light that shines your truth into their lives. I pray this in Jesus' name.